1: very pleased to be joined today by one of the most astute commentators on western civilization american politics global events canadian affairs my former colleague david from david welcome
0: hey thank you so much
1: we are celebrating a terrible anniversary tomorrow the anniversary of kristallnacht mm-hmm. in 1938 uh, Kristallnacht occurred five years into Hitler's reign, uh, which occurred 10 years after Hitler's real appearance in German culture in 1923. Uh, The Nazis take power in 1933. Uh, They immediately begin putting into law restrictions on Jewish life. Uh, The professors are kicked out of the university. Books are burning by May. You have the Reich citizenship laws are passed in 1935 where Jews can no longer uh, be considered citizens, have no protections under the state, have no ability to work in professional services, whether it be university professor or a teacher. And then there is the assassination of a fairly minor Nazi party official in Paris and the German pogrom begins. And there's exactly one paper in America, uh, that captures it correctly. It's a Los Angeles Tribune, and it says, "Jews will be no, Jews will be annihilated in Germany. Uh, democracies are their only hope." Well, what are we watching in the world in this country with the explosion of anti-Semitism within living memory of Schindler's List? Within living memory of Elie Wiesel addressing indifference at the dawn of a new new millennium at the White House, Uh, within the lifetimes of the survivors of the camps, where across America, whether it might be in Florida or California or anywhere in between, there are old men and women with tattoos on their arms. We were supposed to never forget what has gone wrong, what has happened.
0: You know, it's a curious coincidence in German history that November 9th, the anniversary of the Kristallnacht, was also the day in 1918 when the first German Republic was proclaimed or when the German Weimar Republic was was proclaimed. Um, And it was the day in uh, 1989 when the Berlin Wall opened and German democracy and unity were restored. Uh, The Germans call November 9th the the day of fate. And it's it's a reminder that um, everything is about choices because uh, this day, which is also one of the most terrible in German history, is also one of the most uh, inspiring in, in German history. And there are other, uh, other coincidences around the November 9th date as well. So as, uh, as we see these, uh, these terrible events in the United States and other countries, well, I think we need to be mindful that um, history is, not, is about choices. Um, that it's always, at any given moment, you can choose one path or another path, and that it's always possible to make your November 9th the day that you remember for um, the, po- the powerful and positive things in history and not the terrible and destructive ones. Um, I, I think that that, that just put, reminds us that history isn't in our hands. It's not something that happens necessarily to us. It's something that we do.
1: I look back on that day, November 9th, 10th, 1989, as an astounding moment mm-hmm. at age 19. In an instant, the world changed utterly, completely. Uh, the Soviet Union was gone. Uh, we grew up in an era and in a culture where Patrick Swayze was a guerrilla commander in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, leading the fight back against the Cuban and Russian invasion. We had the Rambo culture of the 1980s, where Sylvester Stallone is going back to Vietnam to get our POWs out. And suddenly, it's all at an end. The war ends, and it begins this decade of optimism that I'm now old enough at 53 when I talk to younger people from a generation ago, it's hard to explain that sense of American optimism at yeah. the turn of the of the millenni, millennium. This this Pax Americana. How do you how do you contextualize that that moment twenty five years on? Um, um,
0: I, I tell a story um, from my own life. I'm a little older than you. Um, I my, my wife and I were married in 1988. Um, we took an extent, we didn't take much of a honeymoon at the time. So uh, two years later, we were both journalists when the, uh, after the um, coming down of the wall, we took a, an extended leave from our jobs and traveled through the newly liberated countries of central Europe. We didn't go to Russia, uh, but we were in almost all of the other countries that had become free in 1989. And what I remember most vividly was uh, taking a night train across a border. If I remember right, it was from Poland into what was then Czechoslovakia. We crossed in the middle of the night, and my wife and I had booked an old-fashioned sleeping compartment. The trains were all from before World War II. And in the middle of the night, we suddenly heard on the door, bang, 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 like from a movie. Bang, 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 bang. So I opened the door, and... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. to the official who was wearing this this uh, suit or this this uniform made out of some polystyrene fabric with little paper ep- epaulettes and he had a leather box with a stamp around slung around his neck, I presented our two passports and said, "Here we are." And he said, "Your wife must present herself." I said, "Oh, for goodness' sakes! It's, it's the middle of the night, and you know she's not dressed. Uh, just here, you know. Yeah, I, I can open the door a crack, but here," he said, "Your wife must present herself." And then he began getting very official, and I just said to him, "I presented my business card for my paper. I said, "Those days are over." And he looked suddenly completely deflated because he knew it too. Those days were over. Uh, those days are back i <laughs> he was right, and I was wrong. <laughs> those days are
1: back. I'm reading the Washington Post this weekend, and Like you, um, I spend a fair amount of time in my day reading over the weekends. I love reading books. I love reading newspapers. I love reading opinion pieces. And I'm always on the lookout for that thing that just captures the moment. And I've been critical of a lot of the journalism over the last seven years, the business realities of the media, the billions that have been made in partnership with Donald Trump and the production of a reality show that's framed to the American people as episodic television where the previous day's events are erased, uh, today's events are offered without context, and tomorrow's are framed as impossible to know when in fact it's all part of of one continuous, unfolding, worsening event, in my view, that's been going on since 2015. So it's in that context that I'm reading the Washington Post this weekend. And, and there it's just laid out, um, as fact, no anonymous quotes, about seven paragraphs that simply report, as a fact matter, Donald Trump's intentions on day one uh, to... Uh, to invoke the Insurrection Act, uh, to deploy the American military uh, into the American nation, uh, ostensibly against the American people, and his desire to prosecute and lock up political opponents. And, And I read that, of course, astounded that I had, realizing, of course, every word of it is true, shocked that 7 years on it's really the first place i've read it so dramatically stated and the in the drama in it is how ordinary and understated the paragraphical formation in the language was what what do you think when you read that do you take him seriously literally i certainly do and my question is, if that happens, the employees of the Insurrection Act on January 20th with Stephen Miller by his side and who knows who else, does the military file the order? Yeah. What, what is the magnitude of the American constitutional crisis in that, in that moment? I certainly know I will be on the streets. Yeah,
0: um, I think it'll, be, it'll look like Tel Aviv three months ago, and not in just one city, but in many, as you say, people will be out. Um, The attitude of the military will become very important. And the question will will be, does Donald Trump have the capacity, um, the technical capacity, the legal authority to remake the military? So I I have two reactions when I read that story. Um, The first is, like you, I often um, speak in front of audiences. And the question I am often asked is, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And uh, I always refuse to answer that question, N- not because I'm scared to make a guess about the future, um, although, you know, we all have to be humble about that. Um, but I say, but you know, when you ask that question, optimism or pessimism, you treat the future as a thing that exists about which statements can be made. Um, and the whole point of the future is, is it doesn't exist. It's what we make. So when people ask what's going to happen, I said, that's the wrong question. The right question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Sir, ma'am, what are you going to do in this eventuality? On the way to this eventuality and after this eventuality. And then the other thing I take from that is I think there are in the first book I wrote about Donald Trump, I had a chapter in which I said there's a strange thing about Donald Trump, which is there are gifts from Donald Trump. There are things he's done for this country that in some ways make it better. Not things, maybe things we'd rather skip. It's like, you, you go through a, a serious disease, and if you survive, you say, I learned some things from this experience. It would be better not to have known. But, <laughs> but, it, but the point did. is, having gone through the disease, and I wish I hadn't, but had I done so, I did come with some wisdom that I wouldn't have had but for the disease. And, and one of the things, and since you opened starting with Germany, I think this whole experience teaches Americans some humility. Uh, there has, for a long time, been an American attitude of arrogance. Other countries, Suffer these things. America is exceptional. America is spared. There's something in the water. There's something in the air. You know that uh, we're different from the common ruck of humanity. We don't face these things. And Donald Trump was sent, perhaps by God, to teach us a little humility. Say, you know what? What other countries have done, you've done. And if whether how bad that turns out to be is also going to be a test for you in the way that other countries have been tested. So, you know, uh, don't be so superior toward those Germans and those French and and, uh, those Czechs and those Hungarians. Um, We all belong to the same humanity. We're all vulnerable to the same temptations. We all meet the same tests. And we all are evaluated, not as nations, but one by one by one as to how we meet the test.
1: Perfectly said. Um, And we want to come back to that in a minute. But I I wanted to, because you raised it up, I, I think you have a unique perspective on the united states because you will always see it at some level or first saw it through canadian eyes and you know a canadian who has served at the highest level in a white house uh who is as astute a student of american history and culture as any as any person but you know we uh as someone who's married to a canadian now and spends a lot of time in toronto was was in your neck of the woods in Prince <laughs> Edward County yeah. and on the Loyalist Parkway, and you yeah. read the story of the Loyalist Parkway, the Canadian history is these are the pioneers who escaped America in seventeen um, in seventeen eighty three after Yorktown and came north, and the Queen dedicated the Parkway in nineteen eighty four. Um, expand on. Uh, this moment through that Canadian prison. When I I go to Canada, this is a dynamic, vibrant society, tremendous amount of immigration, almost a buzz of energy uh, in the airports when you you land and you come through customs. Um, How does a Canadian grow up in our generation, looking at America, come to America and seeing it today through that unique prism?
0: Yeah. Well, first, welcome. Um, you know, you, you, you are spending a lot of time in, in Canada and, and your perspective on Canada will um, be a way to en- enrich Canadian self-understanding. I grew up um, in a very provincial Toronto. It was then a much smaller city. Um, and it was then not yet the dynamic global center it is today. And my uh, parents are both Jewish, of course. And I'm Jewish. Um, my father's family <clears throat> had arrived in Canada in 1930. Um, just for economic reasons, they couldn't make a living in Poland, and they, they were able to get to Canada. And because they did that, um, they lived. And almost all of their relatives on both sides were, were murdered. And my father, had, my, had his parents made a slightly different decision, he would have been murdered around the time of his 10th or 11th birthday. Uh, so... That was always in the air. It was never spoken about. It was always thought about. And we I grew up understanding both that tragedy and also that um, Canada enjoyed this extraordinary security that it did as a gift from the United States. Canadians didn't do it themselves. Um, and Canada, it has a strange interlocking relationship with the United States where um, it... it um, canada lives doesn't pay for its own defense it doesn't pay really for even its own policing it, it borrows all of that from the united states which you know is is projecting so much security that of course it includes canada whether it intends to do so or not um but there is also an experiment here which is the countries had very similar foundings i mean the american civil war since the american revolution was also civil war um and my part of on the part of ontario where i spend so much time now was was settled as you said by the losers in that civil war who then got they were supposed to be compensated by the new post-revolutionary government, that never happened, so they got land grants from the British government instead on the other side of Lake Ontario, and they settled the area where, where I now live, um, or much of the uh, So there's been a long running experiment, was what if you take very similar societies that share a long history of being part of one entity, you know, in um, in 1750, Boston had a lot more in common with Halifax than Boston had with any place in the American South. Uh, and, uh, and, any, and by the way, places in the American South had a lot more common with Barbados than they did with Boston. When the one time George Washington traveled outside of Virginia before he became general of the armies, he went to Barbados. He, he had never been to Boston until the revolution broke out. Um, so you've done this experiment. What happens if you put slightly different institutions in place in these two countries? You know, we we're talking about growing up in the Reagan era. It's, it's, if the United States had the Canadian Constitution, Ronald Reagan would never have been president. The United States would have been governed by Prime Minister Tip O'Neill. Uh, you know, the, the, the presidential system produces different results from a parliamentary system. And of course, Canada doesn't have, or until very recently, did not have a formal Bill of Rights. It only got one in the 1980s. And it's it's a much and the role of the courts and of legal rights are much more vague in Canada than they are in the United States. There's no that's why there's you no know, there's no there are guns in Canada. Lots of them. all my neighbors in, in rural Ontario have shotguns and long guns to protect their their chickens. Um, but you don't have a lot of handguns and you don't have a lot of um, pretend military
1: rifles. Mackenzie King, the prime minister of Canada, was a confidant of Franklin Roosevelt's and was very cognizant that roosevelt was a world historical figure he would spend uh weeks in residence at the white house like churchill did and they're talking late into the night and uh, roosevelt is talking about the architecture of the world to come uh his vision for the u.n uh declaration of human rights his vision for the united nations the the collective security agreements uh decolonialization, the rights of self-determination, all of these things that that become really the American-led liberal world order, small l. And uh, he he says to King that his ambition is that nothing um, lasts forever. Uh, But he hopes that this uh, will endure for as long as everybody is alive on the day uh, that he that hmm. hopes it will last for as long as everybody who is alive on the day the war is won, is still alive. And those people know that story. Are, are 78 years old now. And you look at Donald Trump talking about coming back, and the very first thing he would do is withdraw the United States from NATO, which... I'm not sure as a legal architecture that he can formally do, but he can effectively do uh, through executive action in a, in a number of different, different ways. I view that as a calamity for world peace catastrophe, uh, probably without, without precedent and what comes behind it will be, will be chaos. But when when you think of what I just said about FDR and Mackenzie King, do, do you see the order of the world that we grew up in, though it has changed and shifted, its parameters have mutated, expanded and shrunk and grown? We've seen great power competition now rise again. But, but do you see the end of that world order at hand, or do you see... It's evolving at hand.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm, I think something very powerful has been created. As you say, it's changed a lot um, since 1945. Um, but the central idea uh, that Roosevelt had, and the people who supported him in many different countries, was um, before 1939, strong countries had tried to find their security through domination. Uh, your France, your Germany, your the two strong countries on Europe. You each try, you, you do this step ladder competition, each to build, gain military supremacy over the other, and to find security through supremacy. And that explodes in the First World War, and then it has this second bloodbath in 1939. And uh, the idea of the new world that comes into being after 1945 is: What if we find our security not through supremacy and domination, but through cooperation? Your security becomes my security, my security becomes your security. And that idea uh, is the foundation of, of institutions that become the European Union uh, um, half a century later. Um, that's, that's the foundation of, of NATO. Now, Donald Trump always talked about it as if it was some defect in the system that Germany would no longer have a big army and Japan would no longer have a big navy. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> you guys concentrate on what you do best. And we will concentrate on providing you more security than you could ever get for yourself um, for very little money. So it's a a great bargain for you. But the bargain that the rest of the world gets is we are spared the negative consequences that come from your clamber after the security through domination that you are never going to get on your own. Um, And I think that idea is now tested in in the Ukraine war. Um, That's why that war is of such global significance. Um, because it's an example of a very large and imp- potentially very important country um, staking the lives of its people in its future on joining this system. Um, and it's a, a little bit what 's at stake in in the Middle East right now because uh, among the people who reject the system, um, you know the, the ideology that is espoused by Hamas is an important part of the, I mean there's a rejectionist bloc that has many ideas. The Chinese reject it for their set of reasons. Other countries reject it for theirs; Islam, as these Islamic uh, radical groups reject it for theirs. And we're testing again and again: Can we extend this? And there, there were always big parts of the planet where the system didn't operate; it never operated in Africa. It didn't really operate all that um, eff- effectively or fairly in Latin America. Um, and uh, it's been a challenge to apply it to Asia, which is the, the where there are so many of these powerful states with deep histories that are going to be very important factors obviously in our time. But it's not just the American guarantee, it's the American idea. Find security through cooperation and and the mutual sharing of security, not through domination and supremacy and, and the race to impose your will on others.
1: What is the deficit of being able to communicate that in the manner that you just have in a way that the American people can understand that we are seeing out of America's only pro-democracy party right now? Yeah, I
0: think Americans do understand it um, at at an intuitive level. You know, when you watch uh, in Ukraine and Israel, you see the American reaction to that, you realize there are two things in the American character that really explain how Americans react to every conflict um, which is um, Americans hate bullies and Americans love winners um, and so the America I mean the American mind is like the kids in the, is the kid in the schoolyard who watches the bully swagger in try to dominate a smaller kid and then the smaller kid musters whatever reserves of courage and bravado that kid has got any punches the bully, in the bully in the nose, makes the nose bleed, and the bully, bully runs away. And America said that kid is our hero. That's the person we want to be. America the, is the teacher, I guess, in this analogy, because they are the strongest presence in the whole schoolyard, but they're a little busy and distracted, and there are a lot of rules about how, governing how they can intervene in the matter. But that's what the Ukrainians did, and that's what the Israelis did. They've always been outnumbered and outgunned, but, and they get pushed, and they push, they push, and then they push back, and they push back with, with courage and, and success. And um, so I think, and I think people understand that the Ukrainians and the Israelis are fighting for something bigger uh, than themselves. They're, they're, they're fighting for a, a world in which intimidation and bullying um, are repelled. And America's find that I think it speaks to them, not in the abstract way I spoke a few minutes ago, but in a deep psychological way.
1: You know, I, I'm listening to you say that it's a, it's so true. And it just made me think of the movie, the Christmas story with Ralphie and Farkas, right. You know, the iconic scene, right. The bully in the puppy jacket. And, you know, Ralphie hits him back defending his brother. It's such an iconic aspect of, of the American character, right. Um, you know, that you just, that you just laid out there. Let, let's turn to politics um could you ever have imagined um at the beginning when trump came down the escalator and i say this to people everybody had my position in the republican party what 100% of every person i knew he's a disgrace he's disgusting he's malice he's awful he's terrible I, I, Trump credits me with being the first person to say on television he could win would win and and was winning um at various at various stages which which obviously gave me no pleasure no pleasure in saying um how do you account for the fact that overwhelmingly Every person we've almost ever known um, in politics—not everyone, but but an overwhelming number in the Republican Party—whether they acknowledge who Trump is in private or public, you know, I mean, in private doesn't matter, but in public they're they're behind him. How, mm-hmm. How do you account for that? Does it surprise you?
0: Well, I was less perceptive about his rise than you. Um, I, I remember very vividly on the Sunday night before the Tuesday vote, uh, my wife and I had a small dinner with Andrew Sullivan, who I think is also a friend of yours. And Andrew, Andrew's a person of great mood swings from optimism to pessimism. And yeah. he, was on, he was on a downswing that night. And and uh, he said, Trump's going to win. Trump's going to win. And uh, I should have listened because Andrew had predicted that Brexit was going to win, which I also had thought would not happen um, or had Wanted to believe would not happen. I suppose because I didn't know enough about British politics. To make a, I never predicted because I didn't know enough. But I just it seemed so dumb. How could they do it? Um, but I was quite sure that Trump wouldn't do it. And Andrew was on this passionate um, explosion of passionate pessimism. And I, and I remember just saying going through all the groups that were going to st- unite against Donald Trump. I was, sort of, I was being a little funny. I, I talk, women who own. Cookware with French words on it. They're going to come out. (laughs) Uh, But he was right, and and I I was wrong. Um, uh, Most of the people um, who were our colleagues, partners, friends, most but not all, uh, did just as you say. And in one way or another, and there were for a variety of motives Um, opportunism, yes. Um, negative partisanship, yes. In some cases, vanity and arrogance—that they thought they could steer this this beast. Um, I'm just reading right now McKay Coppins' excellent book on Mitt Romney.
1: Can't wait to can't wait to read it.
0: It's re- it's really worthwhile. And because Romney's very honest about himself in a way that few politicians are ever able to be at any stage in their life. And uh, Romney's last temptation is Trump offered him, or sort of offered him, the Secretaryship of State in 2016. And I think it, it, in retrospect, it was really a trap that the deal was you retract with uh, your criticisms of me and you can be you can have this job. And then Trump would have reneged on the deal, which Romney sort of figured out. But he did take it very seriously, Inclu- partly because both George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton telephoned him to plead with him to take the job. Um, you know, that, that's that's you know, you got both those calls and you're Mitt Romney. You're going to take it pretty right. seriously uh, that that past president and. And a Former Democratic, past Democratic presidential nominee, both say you have to do this. the country needs you to do it. Um, but the problem they had was you can't uh, you can't control this beast. Um, I, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic um, in that transition period, and it had begun as as an email from a friend of mine who'd been offered not Secretary of State but a medium important job, and I offered my advice as to what you should do. I said, look, if you, and it expanded into this piece, if you're offered an independent commission, F- FCC something, Federal Communications Commission or something like that, yeah, of course, you take it. You don't answer to the president, you're doing your role for the public. The answer is yes. Uh, if you're offered a military role, uh CENTCOM commander, well, then you must take it um, because uh, you have a duty to the country and these jobs have to be done. But if you're offered anything where you report to Donald Trump, just keep in mind that the re- the only way you can justify taking this job is if you are confident you will be able to say no and then bear in mind that if trump shared your opinion of yourself he wouldn't have offered you the job in the first place that the job the, his premise was i can bend this person because trump has this feral ability like some kind of Carnivorous beast to scent human weakness. That's, he's got some skills, and that's his greatest skill. He can he can see the person of integrity. He just instinctively recoils from, and the person of with a with his any crack, any fissure, where selfishness and cowardice and greed can trickle in. Trump can see that, and he finds those people. Um, so. Uh, A lot of the people were led into the Trump camp by vanity, by their overestimation of their own ability to direct affairs. And I think in almost every case, um, they paid a terrible price for it, including very good, like the John Kellys of this world. Um, They paid a price.
1: Do you see any scenario where he is not the Republican nominee at this point? It's a
0: very far-fetched scenario. Um, The scenario I see is that the, Something in the judicial system happens so fast that sometime before Republicans are locked in in the middle of February, there's some devastating legal event that causes a shock in Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, that's a pretty improbable set of facts. we're now almost at the middle of November, and this has to happen before the middle of February. So it just doesn't seem that the court system works that way. But that that could do it. But but clearly his opponents. Um, they don't have the instinct. I mean, I I thought the, there was this moment, I'm going to forget now, the first time I saw it, where Ron DeSantis was asked, what's the difference between you and Donald Trump? If he, there was any hope that DeSantis was going to win, he would have answered that question. The difference between me and Donald Trump is that I will not be in prison on election day 2024. Yeah. You know, damn it, put your put your... Cards on the table, stake your claim, say, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to look this guy in the eye and tell him what I think of him. Because if you're too scared to do that, you just don't have what it takes.
1: A hundred percent. So when I look back on all of the major political leaders of our lifetime, of our careers, so I'm gonna I'm going to put Ronald Reagan in. To begin 1980, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this, but we can go back to Jimmy Carter for the purposes of the exercise. Who do you think of all the presidents, of all the nominees, would have been the toughest opponent for Donald Trump to handle? I think I just think there's one person who completely stands out. I, I think it's George W. Bush. I, I don't Donald Trump would not have been able to handle him. Yeah, as, as a political, that's, very,
0: that's very perceptive,
1: as a political as a political candidate. And and Bush was always underestimated as a political yeah. candidate, the great politician.
0: Yeah, well, uh, he also had this kind of sly, sly, subversive. Right. Humor. Um, and
1: would have uh, hit him in the ego every day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He just he, uh, he he was very good with people who were full of themselves. And um, I, I, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's very good because I think um, uh, Reagan Reagan would have contra- con- contrasted Reagan's goodness of p- character against, but but I don't know that Reagan would be able to cope with the onslaught mm-hmm. that he would have had in a Trump Reagan contest. Whereas, as you say, George W. That's very interesting. I, I I think you're right. I think you're completely right.
1: Isn't it time? You opt out of restrictive health insurance plans and let CrowdHealth help fit your health care needs? Get started today for just $50 per month. Use code WARNING to get the health care you deserve. CrowdHealth is not insurance. Learn more at JoinCrowdHealth.com. That's JoinCrowdHealth.com. Code WARNING. When well, you look at politically right now, um, and, and obviously I'm in, I'm involved, um, in a democratic primary, um, with, uh, as a volunteer help, help a friend, um, get started in a campaign. And I think the Biden team needs to get out and start running laps around the, around the track politically as a matter of emergency, but Joe Biden is losing this race to Donald Trump. The elections last night and the results have nothing to do with President Biden. They do have some to do with the issues. You do see in Kentucky a Democratic governor with an ability to connect in the eastern part of the state in Appalachia, where really the opioid crisis in the country began, Pike County, Hazard County. A lot of coal mining countries, places where where Trump won by where Trump won by 40 points. You look at the Mississippi race with Presley, where Democratic candidate uh, was knocking on the knocking on the door down there. But when you get inside the Washington mix, you know, the 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 blue and the red in Washington in this in this moment. Um, and I. As a general proposition, you know, I think Biden has been a good president, but I think politically, you know, there are two things that are just self-evident. The extremism is hotter, it's better funded, it's better organized, and it's coming for power, A. And B, though he's been effective governing... I think, and I think that 50 years from now, people will look back at the Biden presidency from an infrastructure perspective in a way that we I mean, look back at Eisenhower's presidency and building so much of the infrastructure in the latter half of the 20th century. But but just objectively, they have not been able to withstand the sixty-foot incoming wave of malice propaganda bs conspiracy theories that is commanded against them in a billion dollar entertainment industry or a malice industry however however you want to think about it and the ability to deal with that Mm -hmm. and to fight through that It be on top of that wave as opposed to under it on a daily basis? Is it be essential to the defense of American democracy and the republic one year, literally over the next year, you know, through one year from now today? How how do you see that? Because because you're an exquisite communicator.
0: Well, look, you're talking to the guy who tried to take who tried to reassure Andrew Sullivan in twenty sixteen. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm talking to someone who's run major campaigns and I never have. So I'm going to be very humble about what I'm about to say, because I'm you know, speaking from a not a great track record and against somebody with a lot of experience. First, I think that the, whether Trump himself gets this, the people around him know Trump's going to get 46 percent of the vote. That's it. That's what's there for him. And 2024 is probably going to be a lower turnout election. Uh, than 2020. And Biden's people basically, Biden has the support of the people who are most likely to show up and the people who are least likely to show up and Trump has the support of the people who are somewhat in the middle. And so there are going to be some very complex mathematics there. But Trump understands he's got 46% of the vote or the people around him do. Their only hope against Biden is to splinter the Democratic coalition, which is always more fissile than the Republican coalition. And so, you know, they're standing up Cornell West to peel off in an effort to peel off some voters on the left. Uh, they're standing up Robert Kennedy to try to peel off some wacky voters, of which there are many in the United States. We're all related to them. Uh, they're trying to, going to try to stand up Joe Manchin or somebody like that to try to peel away the
1: suburban. Do you think place. that that's real, the no labels, the no labels effort? Or do you think it's all smoke, smoke, and mirrors? I mean... I- because it, it it costs eighty million dollars if you're an independent effort to get on the ballot, yeah. and and they're either they're either going to get on or they're not, and but there's no evidence of action only of talk, and I just yeah. how do I you don't know. how do you assess that? Is it real?
0: I I, I, I don't assess it. I, I'm you know I know yeah. the people involved, and I, I I personally like them a lot, so I'm I'm hopeful that it's um it's some other things are going on, and I want to say no labels do, has done over the past decades, some really good work in Congress, and I hope everybody will involved will say that should be our legacy, that the excellent work we've done in Congress. They were crucial to the passing of the infrastructure bill, as, as you said just a minute ago, uh, and they said, we, don't need, we don't need to muddy this record. But um, Joe Manchin, I think, is thinking about it, whether he, no labels is his vehicle or not. Um, and all of these things, the, 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 and if you're a Trump person, you have to be thinking, let's just try to find some way that Biden, look, the, Biden spans the vote spans the coalition from Bernie Sanders to Ann Romney. Um, let's. <laughs> so can we detach any parts of this weird big coalition from any of the other parts? And if we can t- detach a point here and a point there, then Trump's 46% of the vote, that becomes a winning hand as it did in 2016 and not a losing hand when he got slightly more of the vote in 2020. Um, so I, I worry about those things. But um, I basically think that, um, The polling on Biden to date has been, they've asked the question, what do you think of the dentist? And Americans say, don't love it. Don't love it. Okay. What do you think of gum disease? Like it a lot less. (laughs) In a contest between the dentist and the gum disease, which do you choose? (laughs) And People say, well, that's the choice. I'm going to go for the dentist every time. You know, I I was out for lunch a little while ago with um, a friend from W. Bush days, we, we served together. I won't give any more clues because I don't want to embarrass him. But he really, he's known Biden for a long time and he really doesn't like him. And not for just the reasons that are out there, for a lot of reasons that are based on sound personal experience. of. Uh, and I,
1: I'm not saying this is fair or unfair. Activity breeds contempt in politics like few other businesses. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I he agree. went on for some
0: time about Biden's many Character flaws, as he had had a good view of them. And when he finally wound himself down, I said, "But well, you're still going to vote for him, right?"
1: He said, "Obviously, <laughs>
0: right, right, right,
1: right. I mean, right. I, but it's not inconceivable, right? When you when you look out right now in the country, because I because with Trump, I, I. This is how I explain this. Trump is a philosopher." Of fuck youism. <laughs> yes. And when you lower the bar and faith is collapsed and trust is collapsed in every institution, and 60% of the countries live in paycheck to paycheck, and 40% don't have 400 there is no expectation. So we don't throw ticker tape parades for our politicians who did what they said in the last election that's why people voted for them right the election if you're going to run it on what you did last sticks you in the past not in the future which is a bigger problem structurally right for, for an 82 year old candidate but you have a vast segment of the population right that feels abused right by a power class in the country uh political power class, media power class, corporate power class. A lot of people relate to politics as the democratic parties, their HR department at their workplace, um, or the democratic parties, the line I'm standing on, right, trying to get something done in a local government office, right? It's the party of government, right? Stickiness, a lot of them uh, condescension. And so when you when you eviscerate standards and you don't really have any expectation that anyone's going to do everything, you know, how does Trump do delivering the fuck you to the people you're angry at? Yeah. He's screaming nonstop, you know, in ever increasing crescendos for seven years. Yeah. And, and that um gives some satisfaction. Now the problem with that is the guy who delivers the FU for you isn't delivering better health care for you, more prosperity for you, more security for you, a better life for your kids. They're just giving you an FU, right? I mean, it's like a big Mac, right? It, it, it tastes good occasionally, I guess, but you know, in the end it's poison. And so, and so, but that's who the guy is. He's not understood as such. And One of the great mysteries, like to me, as somebody who grew up in New Jersey, right, you just you sit and you watch with just astonishment, right, that this person who kind of was present in your life from, you know, 1984 on is somehow, you know, on the precipice of becoming America's first and most deranged dictator. It's a it is it is the one thing at 14, I would not have guessed surveying all the figures in the cultural landscape of mid-80s America. It's astonishing.
0: Right. So, I'm I'm just going to keep betting that as much as people enjoy the spectacle of fuck you, I just, I just keep going. In 2016, uh, Trump lost the popular vote, but was able to eke it out in the Electoral College with Russian help and the help of Jill Stein and a few others. Then he lost the House in 2018. Then he lost both the popular vote and the electoral college in 2020. Then he threw away the Senate in 2021. Then he converted the red wave of 2022 into um, a five vote majority in the House of Representatives and just havoc down the ballot, losing four state chambers in, in 2022. And then this election in 2023, um, where you know uh, Virginia, a very independent swing state, um, Went Democratic at a time when you would not maybe have expected that to happen. A Democratic governor survives in Kentucky. Uh, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court expands its Democratic majority. I, I just think the warning signs are out there that people say, "Ha ha ha!" I'm, I'm enjoying the show or not. But in the end, um, most you know most of the time people do the response when they, when they need the brakes fixed. Uh, they don't go to the loudest guy. Um, you know when uh, when when they. When their computer eats their photographs, they have to get the photographs reconstituted. They don't go to the fuck you guy. They go to the guy who can reconstitute the photographs. And most people, you know, we live lives of responsibility and we want things to work. And we sort of get that Trump's not that
1: guy. It's one of the great astonishments of the age, right, which is you try to understand, right, if the commanding officer of the Gerald Ford steaming in the Eastern Mediterranean acted like Donald Trump, you know, for any contiguous period over 11 seconds, right? He'd be immediately relieved of command, right? Any person in a position of responsibility, yet we have a person who beyond any doubt and even even during uh the follow-on presidency, I I think has remained the undisputed leading cultural figure in the United States now, you know, for seven years. And huh. that's a long time and it's done terrible, terrible, terrible damage. Like a like a like a flesh eating necrosis to the character.
0: I mean me, one more damage that um Your military, your 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 scenario about Trump trying to seize power, and you asked at the beginning the question: the military will the military obey him? One of the consequences, one of the possible outcomes here, is that Donald Trump doesn't destroy the United States; he destroys the United States presidency. Um, Which is one of the things that I one of my. It's both a funny but also a little scary story. The story of the military parade that Donald Trump wanted. Yeah. Uh, So he goes to France in July of 2017. They have the. Big French parade, and it's something that's in their culture that isn't in our. And he says, I want one of these. And he says, Tell us the military, do it for me. The military said, That's French military culture. We don't do that stuff uh, for two reasons. Um, one is that our soldiers are heavily worked professionals. And if they have time for a stupid parade, they have time to spend that time with their families. We're not going to ask them to do a pointless task. And second, it's political, and we we stay very far away from all of that. So the story of the next three years is the military generating one excuse after another as to why it can't give them its parade. And my favorite part part of this long-running story was they they say, well, um, if we put military vehicles on the streets of Washington, D.C., they will destroy the asphalt, and Washington, D.C. will bill us, and it will cost $80 million, and we don't have the $80 million line in our budget, so we can't do it. So Trump then gets somebody to write, do a paper that says it won't cost $80 million. It will cost $8 million at most. And the military then leaks to the Washington Post, the $80 million study that says, no, it won't be 8 million. It'll be 80 and we don't have budget. We can't show up. And they they just didn't want to do it. And they finally, and they found ways. And finally, he ended up getting a a jet fly pass, but not the parade. Um, Okay. Ha, ha, ha. ha.
1: An incredible story. Give complete continue,
0: but on the other hand, it's kind of ominous that if the president of the United States, the commander in chief of the U.S. military, says, "Give me a parade," the military says, "You know, uh, well, we'll need three and a half years of planning just past the next election in order to deliver that. <laughs> We're not going to do it, sir. We're not going to do it. Like they have to do it, but they didn't do it." And and that was a funny example. But in the second term, there are going to be more serious examples. Um, you know, what if the um, you know, we we're asking what can't. one of the greatest crises in Canadian constitutional history happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time was a man named John Diefenbaker, who had come in as a very flamboyant figure, but who went mentally ill. As probably became paranoid and manic depressive, um, and he developed this intense loathing of John F. Kennedy, and. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the order went out to um, harden North American airspace because in those days you're worried about the manned bomber that is going to come, not missiles, but the the Soviets are going to send manned bombers over the North Pole. And Canadian airspace is absolutely integral to the defense of the United States. And Diefenbaker refuses to put Canadian forces on alert, uh, basically out of spite. And the Canadian forces say, but wait a moment, Canada ratified the North American Air Defense Treaty. Um, We are integrating these North American units and my chain of command my immediate officer is the commander-in-chief in in Colorado Springs. That's the order I take. And the prime minister can't cut into that chain of command and override the order because there are treaties and things like that. And the military went on alert anyway and ignored the prime minister. This is a huge deal. There's an election in the next year which Diefenbaker then lost, in which the Canadian public ratified the military's, in effect, disobedience. Of a superior order on the grounds that it, their argument was it was unlawful. There's a there was a treaty and they had obligations, um, but that's the kind of crisis that is going to happen again and again and again. That the military is going to find a Trump order is in some it contradicts an existing treaty that the president has not formally canceled. Uh, it contradicts some other law. We're not going to do it. And you can't just invoke the Insurrection Act and send which is written in what 1792 and override every loss since then about civilian military relationships no we're not going to do it we're going to find ways not to do it but that's scary too
1: the the last the last story i wanted i wanted to share with the viewers talk about for a minute because you you might be the only guest that will ever be on the warning who will know where this place is it's chalk river ontario where the canadian uh nuclear reactor was where the town and facility that played an important part of the Manhattan Project. And so this summer, um, I drove from Santa Barbara uh, up into Nelson, British Columbia, one of the great mountain towns uh, in North America with my 17-year-old son. Um, We kind of came through the Kootenays, this beautiful region of British Columbia, to Waterton, Alberta. Which is the Canadian side of Glacier, the Peace Park. Drove across Montana, uh, through Michigan, and then up through the Upper Peninsula, back up into Ontario. And as we're driving, and um, we'd get up to Chalk River, I, you know, I say to my son, "Do you know anything about Chalk River? You ever heard about?" It? And of course, he hadn't, and I told him the story of the nuclear meltdown that occurred there in 1956. Mm -hmm. And and there was one guy in the world um, who was deemed competent enough, prepared enough, technically proficient enough to be able to go into that reactor, to lead a team into that reactor and deal with the meltdown. And that was, of course, 26-year-old Lieutenant James Earl Carter of the United States Navy, an American president in his his 100th year. And you think about that man um, who was in a different party than ours and that part of his story, it's an incredible one. And you kind of appreciate that generation. He he graduated from Annapolis in 1946, George Herbert Walker Bush, born in the same year, literally 100 years ago, 1924. You know, these were the youngest pilots in the Navy, right? These were the young officers, you know, who fought in the last year of the Second World War and began the post-war era at the very, very end of their lifetimes. And here we sit under a grave threat. And I just wanted to, if you have any last words or thoughts on any of this, I have a last you. word. Thank um, you for doing this.
0: I have a last word on that. Which is I, I'm very allergic to these concepts of one generation being different or special, and I have the the, the person I'm going to cite for my authority for rejecting this is Abraham Lincoln. So on the night that Lincoln is reelected in 1864, um, a big band of supporters forms and goes to the White House to serenade him, which is how you what you did in those days. There's no Truman balcony, so uh, so Lincoln when he comes out to greet them, he's on the the main floor of the the White House, and there everyone's cheering and it's raucous. And you would, given how close that election was, how uh, nearly re- uh, Lincoln lost it, you would forgive him for taking a little bit of a victory lap. But no, no, the ultimate Debbie Downer in American history <laughs> does not do that. Instead, he he reads them a prepared statement, and there's one paragraph from it that I think resonates through the years. He says, um, "In any." And I can quote it, not quite verbatim, but this is more or less it. In any future national trial, compared to the the men of this, we shall have as many wise and as many foolish, as many brave and as many cowardly, um, as many noble and as many silly. Human nature will not change. So let us study the events of this time, not as wrongs to be avenged, but as philosophy to learn wisdom from.
1: What a perfect way to end this conversation. David From what a pleasure. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks for allowing me on. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts.